Let us pray. Our most eternal and everlasting Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, majestic in all your ways, patient, caring, a God who loves us. We thank you for the way you continue to be faithful to us in this area. Even when you send through your storms and everything, you continue to shelter us in a way that shows your goodness to us. We thank you for the many blessings that you bestow upon each and every member of this congregation. We recognize that uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. So we do request, Heavenly Father, that we will continue to meet what you expect from us. We recognize also that we live in a tumultuous times and that things are getting erratic but under your control. So we do request that as we have gathered this morning to hear a portion of your word that God the Holy Spirit who is the perfect communicator will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. Before I introduce the section that we are about to study, it's usually that I should uh, periodically, as I say things, as the Holy Spirit steers me to certain things, and I make some comments to you. We are, at this time, in Christendom, facing something I will call challenging. Because many Christians are just merely going through the motion of being called Christians. They give lip service to the Bible. They say they believe it, but in everything they do, from leaders on, they in every way show the opposite. And that makes me think of what the Lord said when he finished that parable regarding prayer. And he said this, the last clause of Luke chapter 18 verse 8. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This to me, we're living in a time of that. So you have to deal with yourself. You have to ask yourself, if he come back today, will he count me faithful? Because things are getting heated. Christians are being so distracted with the war that it's almost unbelievable. I'm saying from pastors down. Their eyes have moved away from the Lord and they are pretending that they are in line with him. When in reality, they have left the boat for a long time. That also reminds me to encourage you to realize that yes, we are in a time that's troubling. 
when all kinds of things is going on. And so that brings to my mind what the Holy Spirit laid in my mind, of course, is what happened in the time of King Asa. Recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 15. If you go and you read it. Things were so bad. And I'm just going to put a verse from that book. It reads, One nation war being, uh, was being crushed by another. And one city by another. Now the thing that uh, I really want to say, Because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. If you read that place, you say, the street wasn't safe to walk around. Everywhere you go, you say, I, I mean, I'm talking about Second Chronicles. That's the kind of, you say, the streets, people were afraid to walk around. That's exactly what we're living now today. But where is that coming from? Blame this, blame that person. No, blame the spiritual life of believers. We are the responsible. We are the salt. We are the light. But we are not functioning that way. And so God says, I am troubling the nations with all kinds of distress. With that, all you have to ask yourself again is, am I being a faithful believer? I wouldn't warm that up. Let's now go to our study. First Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. First Corinthians chapter 12, we're dealing with, we're dealing with the treatment, treatment of parts of the body. Verse 20 reads, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with great, with uh, special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body. But that each part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Now let me refresh your mind with the overall message of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses, uh, verses 12 through 26 which is unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ. That is the church of Christ. Now this message we stated uh, places us believers on some responsibilities. Now we have considered the first two responsibilities 
that you have as a believer regarding this message. The first responsibility as given in the subsection of First Corinthians 12 verses 12 through 13 is you should recognize the unity and the diversity in the church of Christ. The second, based on the subsection of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 14 through 19, is that you should focus on facts stated about members of the church of Christ. Now, this second responsibility led us to five facts that you should know. If a quick review of those five facts are in order here. The first is that the church of Christ consists of several members. The second is that no believer can be separated from the body of Christ. The third is that each member is necessary for the functioning of the local church of Christ or the universal church of Christ. The fourth is that it is God who places each member of the church in the church to function as in ones. The fifth is that there will have been no church of Christ as we know it today if it consists only of one member. So this brings us then to the third responsibility that you have as given now in the section of 1 Corinthians 12 verses 20 through 26. Now the third responsibility you have regarding the overall message of this section, again that unity and diversity are essential in the body of Christ, that is the church of Christ, that third responsibility is this. You should be careful how you treat members of the body of Christ. Again, that third responsibility. You should be careful how you treat members of the body of Christ. That is, of course, the church. Now, we will present uh, this responsibility by linking it to reasons or positions that are necessary to bear in mind to help each believer carry out this third responsibility. Now, the apostle, prior to stating the first reason which will carry out the third responsibility, conveys that a thing he stated in verse 20 is, in a sense, a summary statement of the reality of the unity and diversity in the church of Christ, instead of the unreal uh, situation referenced in the preceding verse of verse 19. Now, we said that the apostle, in a sense, makes a summary statement in verse 20 because of what he wrote in verse 20 is really identical to how the apostle began his discourse on the necessity of unity and diversity in the church of Christ as said, look again, the passage we're studying in verse 12, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. Because again, there it says the body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Now we indicated the apostle is concerned with that which is 
a reality in contrast to that which is unreal that he mentioned in verse 19 because the apostle begins verse 20 in the Greek with two Greek uh, particles. The first particle is a Greek word noon that is used in two several ways. The word noon and actually spelled N-Y-N in the uh, transliteration. Now it is used as a marker of time with focus on the moment as such. So it means something like now, now. Now another usage is as a marker of time with focus. Not so much on the present time as the situation pertaining at a given moment. Hence means something like as it is. As, now as it is. Now as it is. Now a second particle that he used is one that uh, can be used to connect uh, one clause to another. Either to express a contrast or simple continuation. But in certain passages or occurrences, this marker may be left untranslated. Although, it is often translated but in the English when there is a perceived contrast between two clauses. But it has other meanings, such as now or then, when it is used to link segments of a narrative. It can also be used to indicate transition to something new or to resume a discourse after an interruption. Now, when the two Greek particles are then used to form a phrase that could, that could literally be translated, bet now, that's the two uh, particles together, they form a phrase, bet now, literally. So, they, that phrase really can be translated looking at the Greek in different ways. So, examination though of the Greek phrase that is used 50 times in the Greek New Testament. And nine of these by Apostle Paul. Examination of this reveals the phrase has been translated in four different ways in the NIV in particular. It is translated by now in the sense of at the present in contrast to another time as the word is used to convey what Abraham said to the rich man who was being tormented in hell as recorded in Luke chapter 16 verse 25. It is used in the last clause of that passage. Luke 16 verse 25. Luke chapter 16, verse 25. It reads, But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now, that's our 
Greek phrase. Now he said, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. So that was then and now. It's a comparison of time, but then the contrast between the two experiences. Now the Greek phrase is translated only with the word now to emphasize temporal aspect of the phrase as we read about what has come to the Gentiles who are now the beneficiaries of God's mercy as we read in Romans chapter 11 verse 30. Romans chapter 11 verse 30. Romans chapter 11 verse 30 reads, Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now, the whole phrase now is just translated now, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. Now another translation of the Greek phrase is simply as it is, as it is where the emphasis is on the situation in a given moment, as that is the way it's used in Jesus' statement to the Jews regarding their intention to kill him, as we read in John chapter 8, verse 40. John John chapter 8, verse 40. It is as it is. That's a Hebrew, I mean a Greek phrase. Nunde. Uh, Here it's translated as it is. You are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have from God. Abraham did, did no such things. You know, the Lord is clearly stating what we you know it's true today. People don't want the truth. If you tell them the truth, they despise you. But I won't keep you from doing that anyway. See though, another translation of the Greek phrase is something like, bet as it is. Bet as it is. To recognize not only a present situation, but also something that is contrasting to something previously stated. It is in this sense, or in this way, that the Greek phrase is used to describe the situation of children in a mixed marriage. That is the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. A mixed marriage where they have been set apart by their exposure to the truth of God's word that will ordinarily now be available to, to the, those children whose parents are both unbelievers. As that's the way it is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14. First Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 14. He reads, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will not be clean. But as it is, again, that's a Greek uh, phrase, non day, but as it is, they are holy. Now, in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, it is really used, or it is translated as it is. In the NIV, though, to recognize that what is about to be stated is that which is real in contrast to what is unreal of the body consisting of only one part as in the conditional clause of where we're starting uh, the, in 1 Corinthians 12, 19 when it says, if they were all one part. That's unreality. Now unity in uh, Diversity in the body of Christ is a reality. Now, once the apostle uh, gets our attention or God the attention, as well as gets our attention regarding the reality of that unity in diversity, he presented them or he proceeded to provide as the first reason we need to consider to help us in carrying out the third responsibility that we have. A first reason, you should be careful how you treat members of the body of Christ, that is the church of Christ, is because of the importance of unity and diversity in the church of Christ. It is this reason that is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, when it says, There are many paths, but one body. There are many paths, but one body. Now, this sentence is an emphatic summary of the concept of unity and diversity in the Church of Christ. Now, the reason for this assertion is that the concept of diversity. Is again introduced in this sentence, and it is the last time in this discourse that is concerned with body and its many parts that the idea of unity in diversity is referenced. The idea of diversity in the body of Christ is given in the phrase many parts. That's why. That diversity comes in. Many parts. Now the many parts are those of human body. But because the apostle is dealing with analogy, the phrase though is a reference to the many members of the church of Christ or the body of Christ. Now the concept of, so we are saying with that uh, phrase, one body, that we now go look at another concept, which is the concept of unity. Because when we see many parts, diversity. 
the, con- uh, the concept of unity is giving that phrase one body. Again, he says, there are many parts, but one body. So we say, many parts, diversity. One body, unity. Now we will say more though, about this phrase shortly. But for, the, for now, we simply wanted to point out that it is a phrase that conveys the concept of unity in the body of Christ. Anyway, it is our uh, contention that because of the two phrases that we consider that 1 Corinthians 12 verse 20 is an emphatic summary of the, to the concept of unity in diversity in the body of Christ. Now this is because, as we said, this is the last time the two phrases or the equivalents are used together by the apostle in this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. That is, of course, concerned with the concept of body and is many parts. Now the idea of many parts and one body is mentioned in the passage we cited previously, that was verse 12 of the passage we're starting, where it talks about the body is a unit, uh, though it is made up of many parts, and, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. Now the same concept of many parts and one body is implied. Look at the passage we're studying. Look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 12, where we're studying. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Now, the body is not, up, is not made up of one part, but of many. So, here we see that concept of one body, one body, many parts, all leading to either unity or diversity. However, after verse 20 though, the apostle no longer mentioned together the concept of many parts and one body in the same sentence. No longer. Hence, we are correct then in saying that verse 20 is an emphatic summary since it is not only a repeat of what is implied in the previous verses, but also the last time we encounter the concept of many parts and one body. So we should recognize that the phrase in one body refers not merely to a human body, but that which is unique in that it is used to imply the body of Christ. Now there's nothing in heaven and on earth that is like this unique body of Christ that we call the church. Nothing like it. It is true that the word one in the phrase when it says one body in 1 Corinthians 12.20 is translated from uh, a Greek word that in our verse has the sense of 
single unit. It's a, it's a Greek word, hen, H-E-N, and it just remains one. But in this particular passage, it has that concept of single unit. In contrast to more than one, but the body though, as a reference to the church of Christ, is unique in that it is composed of two different groups of people as the Bible recognizes. That's what makes it unique. See, in spite of how people try to classify themselves at the present time, the scripture recognizes the world of humanity as consisting of only two groups, Jews and Gentiles. That is, those who are, or who we are really, at that time, descendants of Abraham and continuing today, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest of humankind. That's how the word of God divides human beings. If you are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you belong to one group. The rest in a different group. And we, you saw that when we uh, dealt with the many concepts of many gods in chapter, uh, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. You see that God abandoned, in a sense, all the other people to their idolatry, focused on Israel, his unique people. So, as far as the Bible is concerned, the wall of humanity is divided into two. Again, Jews and Gentiles. Now, so, for that reason, this one body that we are dealing with, that is the Church of Christ, is composed of these two groups that form a third group. A third group. In other words, today, there is a third group of humanity. We have studied that in detail. Some of you got it, and many of you didn't get it. But we have studied that in detail when we studied the concept of the third group of humanity in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Here it says, it reads, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 15 reads, By abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man. We spend time, when we study this passage, to explain that. One new man out of the two. Those making peace. Now the phrase, the two, refers to Jews and Gentiles that form the new humanity. That is, the one new man where the division of people into two different groups has been abolished, so to say. So anyway, the point is that in Christ, there is no division of people into groups. Although today, after what I think that we're just kidding ourselves many, many times, people are still doing that. 
Now this does not, of course, change the fact that there are physical differences between the various members of the body of Christ, but that such differences are not important in any form in the body of Christ and should not be a concern for those in the body of Christ. See, the fact remains that the apostle, in the analogy of the body, wants to convey the unity in the church, but not uniformity, as that will imply lack of diversity. He's talking about unity, but not uniformity. Now, here's something that if you I mean, and no one here who's gone through the study of the sovereign plan of God should be surprised when I make this kind of statement. But those who have not, he shocked them. Well, here's the thing. Diversity of any kind is from God. Diversity of any kind is from God. Now, for there is really evidence that when God first created humans, they looked alike. But sometime later, he brought about diversity in how people looked. When he created the world, the two parents looked the same. And known there for several hundreds of years. Now the scripture does not really go into uh, detail of this because that's really not important per se. But in the uh, pseudo epigraphical book of Enoch, that fact is referenced when it is reported that the father of Noah was shocked when he was born, when Noah was born, because he had a different complexion than himself and that of others so that he was the first with a skin color different from others as implied in the narrative of the book of Enoch now you don't have the book of Enoch uh, you can go online and get it some of you may do but I, I just it's not something readily available the book of Enoch is not accepted as inspired by uh, early fathers, and so it's not part of the Bible. However, you can tell that it is, many parts of it is true because Jude quoted from it, Peter quoted from it. So there are some truths to it, no doubt. And one of the, the, the things that he says here, uh, we don't have anything said in the scripture about it. However, there are other ways that we really feel that what Enoch wrote was true. So I'm going to read to you from chapter 106, verses 10 through 12 of the book of Enoch. And this is, of course, a translation by Charles and uh, Osterley. Now, this is... Yeah, this is from the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. And so I'm going to read their translation. And this is the way it reads. 
And now, my father, hear me. Unto Lamech, my son, there have been born a son, the like of whom there is none. And his nature is not like man's nature. And the color of his body is whiter than snow, redder than the bloom of a rose. And the hair of his head is whiter than white wool. And his eyes are, the ray, are like the rays of the sun. And he opened his eyes, and thereupon lighted up the whole house. And, the, and he arose in the hands of the midwife, and opened his mouth, and blessed the Lord of heaven. And his father, Lamech, became afraid and fled to me. And did not believe that he was uh, that he was sprung from him, but that he was in the likeness of angels of heaven. And behold, I have come to thee that thou mayest know, may make known to me the truth. And uh, if you read the rest of it, he says uh, he could and say, "No, go back. Don't worry about this son. I brought him from him. Some things are going to happen on this planet." He's a special child. So, so the book goes on, of course, to explain that Noah was a special child then, that he and his three sons will be spared when the Lord cleanses the earth because of the sins of angels and having sexual relationship with humans that led to the birth of those who are half human and half angels. Now, based on this information, it would seem that it isn't through Noah that God introduced what we call today ethnic diversity. That's where it came from, from, based on this information. So it is implied that because Noah was an exception, an exception being being an albino and was different in his color from that of his wife, that that explains why the three sons of Noah have different hues as ancient tradition indicates. Ham was the darkest, hence the father of all dark people and some slightly dark people. And Shem was, a, was brown, and so the father of all brown people, and Jeph was the fairest of the three sons of Noah, and so is the father of the Caucasian people. Now, what we have explained, though, makes good sense, as it is clear that if a fair-skinned person is married to a dark-skinned individual, their children range from dark to being very fair in complexion. In fact, it is this explanation that makes it easy to believe what the Bible says about humans on earth today as coming from one common ancestor, Noah, 
as we read in Genesis chapter 9, verse 19. Genesis chapter 9, verse 19. Now I've always, uh, one of those things, uh, when I studied the book of Genesis, I was so amazed at how many commentators, they didn't even, they jumped over it. <laughs> they didn't want to explain it. They just jumped over it. Didn't even make a comment about it. But look at what he says. This is just one of those things I say, you either believe the Bible or you don't. If you believe it, you must follow through what it says. If you don't believe it, just you know, pretend that you believe it and show it in your action because you don't really go through. So here's what it says. These were the three sons of Noah. And from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Now, by the way, I'm about to really uh, provide, uh, or at least provide you more information. Because what I'm teaching now is really not new, per se, except I'm going to provide some new things about that is more like, more scientifically driven in a sense. But if you remember, I dealt with this in when we studied this book of Genesis. Most of you have forgotten it. So if you want to refresh your mind, I say go back, listen to lesson number 71. Because I dealt with the issue of race, when I de- developed the concept, there's no such word as race when it's talking about human beings. And so on and so forth. I went through all those things in detail. So I'm only, what I'm adding here is simply some scientific information. Although when I did that, I explained that based on my research work that was funded by NASA through what I did with called genetic algorithm. So I used that as part of the way I explained it. But there are other ways that uh, some of these things can be explained. So, without though, here's the thing, without accepting that Noah was the first person with a different skin color among the antediluvian people, one is at a loss of how to explain this passage in Genesis chapter 9 verse 19. In light of the fact that the people on the world today have fair to dark skin. Now, unless you prepare to say, well, the others evolved and the others were created. But if they all came through creation, you have to explain that. And I did that when we studied it. I mean, no, that's not, you know, you, I almost assure you that not too many, you won't hear that in most of our local churches. Because they are content in lying to people, making people comfortable so they don't come out of their whatever they are in and come out to the truth and enjoy God's blessings in their life. They don't want to do that. They are content with lying to people or not telling the truth. So here is what I'm saying is, if you don't understand accept what I've just explained to you, you go home, find a perfect explanation for Genesis 9 verse 19. Unless of course you don't believe it's the Bible. Now if you don't believe it. Then I have, any, have nothing to say to you. But if you do believe it. Then you have to explain it. And so that's why I said. Even when, I, when we started to begin with. I didn't mention that Noah was an albino. I did mention that. 
And of course, I cited the work of Dr. Costain, who is now in the presence of the Lord, uh, who was born in England and moved to Canada. And he spent his life researching on the three sons of Noah. I did cite him uh, during that study in Genesis. Anyway, here is the thing, though. The book of Enoch is really confirmed because of what it said by, by scientists. See, science actually then confirms what we have here in the book of Enoch. Other scientists do not say much about it. This is probably because of the implication. Now, science speaks of what is called Melanie or Melanie. Now, according to the scientists, Melanie is a substance in your body that produces hair, eye, and skin pigmentation. Now, the more melanin you, you produce, the darker your eyes, your hair, and skin will be. Now, they say that the moment, now the amount of melanin in your body depends on, this is what they say, a few factors, including genetics, and how much sun exposure your ancestral population had. The implication of this existence of melanin, as I explained it, is that the original humans had more of it before they began to lose it, leading to becoming lighter, people becoming lighter in their skin color. It's originally you have to have a lot of it before you begin to shed it off. So, you know, instead of taking what Enoch said and try to make sense out of it. Anyway, here the truth is, it's really it's impossible for the first woman to have been without much of Melanie and suddenly acquire a lot of it. That's impossible. I mean, it's a, in a way, if you apply the whole principle of second law of thermodynamics, that will not happen. Because you're reversing something that's impossible. Anyway, there must have been, though, abundance of melanin before there can be less of it. Now, consider the fact that when a person spends more time in the sun, the body produces more melanin, that is. And that is why a lighter-skinned person gets tanned when the person spends a lot of time in the sun, but never enough to become dark-skinned. Now, the point of what I'm describing is that God was the one that introduced diversity in physical makeup of people. He, he did that. Because he created the first albino. Noah. He, he brought him in. So, but here's the thing. He had a purpose for doing this. And so we should not be concerned about the physical diversity since it is from him. Furthermore, spiritual diversity is from God. Hence, he gives different spiritual gifts to different believers. And so no believer should be concerned with diversity, whether in a physical or a spiritual sense, because both are from God. Unless, of course, my friend, you're not afraid to question God for his actions. In other words, 
If you're not afraid to say to God, why some people are dark and some people are light skin. If you're not afraid of that, be my guest, go ask him. Let me answer you. And you may get the answer like Job. I don't know. Anyway. So the point is, unless you're bold enough to do that, you cannot despise diversity in any form or shape because it's from him. Because to do that is to despise what God has done. He has a reason for it. Uh, maybe someday, I, I don't remember whether in this story, because it was a year and a half ago when I studied it, maybe through this study we might still come to an answer as to why, one of the reasons why he must have done that. Anyway. So in any event though, the first reason you should be careful how you treat members of the body of Christ is because of the importance of unity and diversity in the church of Christ. A second reason, you should be careful how you treat members of the body of Christ is because each member depends on the order. Each member depends on the order. Now this second reason, uh, reason stems really from the first reason. We say this because the English of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 21 should begin with a translation of a Greek word that uh, used in, in this verse that may be used to connect one clause to another. Again, either to express a contrast or simple continuation within certain uh, occurrences, the marker is simply left untranslated. So again, sometimes we find it being translated now and then and so. Now, majority of our English versions did not translate this Greek word in verse 21. But they should, really. The New American Standard Bible translated it with the word and. I think it's in the update 1995 edition, I think. Translated with the word and, which is a possible uh, translation. But it seems to me that the Greek word is used with a sense of and for this reason, that's the way it seems to me it should be translated. And for this reason. And so, that uh, verse 21 should begin with the word so, as you find in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, or so then, as you find in the today's English version. In other words, I believe that both translators accepted that that. Uh, what should have been given that meaning and for this reason. And so, so is a way to say that. Or then, now if verse 21 then begins this way, it is easier to perceive that what is given in verse 21 is, is related to what is stated in verse 20, which is there is unity in diversity of the body of Christ. Now, the fact that there is unity and diversity in the church of Christ leads to the assertion that each member of the body of Christ needs the order. Each member. Now, you may think that you do not need other believers now, but sooner or later you will come to recognize that that is not an attainable position. 
Or you think you don't need others. Now if our spiritual life is meaningful and important to us, again, like my introduction, if you're not just going through the motion of being a Christian, I, 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 I mean, I'm not saying you're not saved, just going through the uh, motion of being a Christian, you're going to die, go to heaven, that's it. No reward, nothing, you're there in heaven because of the grace of God too. I mean, those who get reward, it's also because of the grace of God, but all that God gave us on this planet, they made use of it. So those ones will be rewarded. But if you are just one of those, you just go through the motion, uh, go to church and come home, and yeah, but uh, once you leave the church, forget about whatever the pastor taught, I don't worry about that. Just go, live your way just the way you've been living. Think the same way you've been thinking. Don't worry about what you had. It should never impact you. Yes, you may be a Christian and go that way. But I have to warn you, that what you're doing is when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, have nothing, nothing. And to me, that'd be sad, especially for someone who's gone through this church. It'd be sad to stand before the judgment seat of Christ with nothing to show for what you know, coming here, whether somebody forced you to come or not, for being here uh, Sunday morning and Wednesday. Just to go back home and do the same thing, and in the end, you have nothing to stand before the presences of, of our Savior to hear Him give you some kind of reward. Anyway, the point remains, though, it, it, it is a fact that uh, we need each other, as the Apostle is compared in the verse 21 that we're starting using two pairs of body parts. The first pair of body parts is used in the first sentence of First Corinthians 12, verse 21. Look at that, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Now literally, the Greek reads, The eye not is able to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Now, this is because of the Greek word used, or the Greek words used here. The word cannot of the NIV combines a negative particle and a verb. Now, the Greek uses a Greek verb, dunamaya, that means to possess capability, whether because of personal or external factors for experiencing or doing something hence means what I mean can or to be capable now the Greek word is then preceded of course by a strong negative that is an objective negative denying the reality of an alleged fact fully and absolutely in contrast to another Greek negative that is subjective implying of course a conditional or hypothetical situation. Does the apostle, by using the very strong one, the Greek word U, absolutely states strongly what the eye could not declare to the hand. Now the thing the eye could not utter to the hand is that it has no need for the hand, as in that translation of the and I view 1 Corinthians 12, 21, when it say, 
I don't need you. Now, literally the Greek reads, I have no need of you. I have no need of you. The word need that we use in the literal translation is actually translated from a Greek word, a Greek noun, really, that has a range of meanings. For example, the word can mean need in the sense of duty or office or service. Duty or service. As it is used for the service to be rendered by the seven men appointed to administer the mundane affairs of the church, of the early church in Acts chapter 6 verse 3. Acts chapter 6 verse 3. Acts Acts of the Apostles, as they say, Acts chapter 6, verse 3, reads, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Now, here are the translators of the NIV render the Greek now, uh, the Greek now, career, would be meaning responsibility in this verse. So the Greek now can, al- can also mean need in the sense of that which is lacking in a material way, as the word is used in the promise stated in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. It reads, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, in our passage though, of 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the word is really used in the sense of need. That is anything that is necessary but lacking. Anything that's necessary but lacking. Hence, if the eye says it has no need for the hand, it utters something that is not true or something that is not even possible. Now, the second pair of paths is used to convey the truth that uh, believers need each other, is in the second sentence of what we're studying, verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at that second sentence of a clause there. It says, And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, you, of course, uh, the apostle is being, uh, is really using human Analogy to convey his point that we need each other in the body of Christ. But using the body parts the apostle mentioned, we know that what is stated does not make sense in that the, the feet could not function without the head. We know that. All you have to see is people who have been having some problems. 
mean, they still have their feet, but they can move it because there's no connection between the head that controls, have, that houses the brain that controls the movement of the foot. Now, so, uh, if the brain does not function, movement then will be impossible. Does the apostle use something that's impossible to happen to illustrate his point that no member of the body of Christ is independent of the order. That's his point. Now, Apostle Paul's, uh, Apostle Paul's uh, use of certain body parts, not able to declare independence from the other uh, body parts, is really intended to convey believers should not think that they do not need each other even those who are different from them. In effect, no believer should think that the individual does not need other believers. We need each other, either physically or spiritually. Many who think that they do not need fellow believers are usually those who are guilty of what I would describe as Laodicean syndrome. Laodicean syndrome. By this, I mean those who are blinded by material affluence that they think that sufficiency in material sense implies sufficiency in spiritual sense. Or that because of material affluence, one thinks the individual must be doing well spiritually. Now, the, the syndrome is the charge the Lord brought on the church in Laodicea, as we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. We're looking at the clock. It's time for break, and after our last supper, we'll come back and uh, continue with it. Now, so pick up your elements and try to peel it off a little bit before you go. <laughs> <laughs> 